I can clearly remember the first time I heard the Prince single 1999. I had just graduated from New York University and the song was blasting into Washington Square Park while a guy roller skated around his boombox. I was already a Prince fan, but I soon considered the album 1999 to be the best of his career. I had no idea, though, that the best was yet to come. Welcome to The Creationist, a podcast about people who create. I'm your host, Steve Waxman. Prince fans will instantly recognize the name Susan Rogers. She's the stalwart engineer that worked beside Prince during the commercial peak of his career in the mid-1980s. But despite the critical acclaim, chart-topping records, and universal admiration from his musical peers, Prince felt that he had not yet made a statement album. But all that changed in 1987 with the release of Sign of the Times. On Sign of the Times, now he's approaching the age of 30. Now he needs to make a man's record, not a boy's record. He can't be talking about lust, he needs to talk about love. So he's maturing, his worldview is maturing, and he's well aware that rap and hip-hop are going to be dominating. They'll be dominating the charts now, and that he doesn't do rap and hip-hop. So it's a man's, I wouldn't say swan song, but it's a man establishing his legacy, or in hopes of establishing his legacy. By the time Susan Rogers had moved to Minneapolis to work with Prince, he was already being referred to as a musical wonderkin thanks to five multi-platinum albums, and 1999 had just become the first record of his to enjoy total and complete crossover from R&B to pop. So to begin at the beginning, I asked Susan how she and Prince began working together. I'm from Southern California, and um, in 1978, I, uh, I, I left a very abusive marriage. I got married when I was 17, and, and it was very abusive. And uh, I got out, I escaped, and I began my career, moved, you know, 45 minutes away to, to Hollywood, and, um, and, and started studying, studying audio electronics and studying uh, to be a maintenance service technician so that I could have a place where records were being made so that I could be involved in, in, in this music business or making records in a way that I, 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 mean, I just loved records so much and I'm not a musician, so I wanted to be a part of it somehow. And that seemed like a fairly indisputable Passcode, you know, uh, gender was an issue back then, as it is now. You just didn't see that many women engineers. You certainly didn't see any women producers. But I wanted to, um, I wanted to be in the room, and um, being an audio technician is indisputable. The, the machine doesn't care whether you have an X or a Y chromosome there. <laughs> just, just fix me. So uh, I began my career in Hollywood, worked for a company called Audio Industries Corporation, and I was a a service technician for MCI consoles and tape machines in the greater Los Angeles area. It was fantastic, but after a few years of that, I went to work for Crosby, Stills & Nash at their Hollywood studio as their maintenance tech. But then the professional audio grapevine lit up with the news that this upstart, this Prince fellow who lived in Minnesota, was looking for a technician, and they wanted someone who'd be willing to leave Hollywood and go move to Minnesota and be full-time tech for this guy who many of the techs had never heard of, you know. But as soon as I heard about that job, uh, I 
I knew it was it was meant for me. He was my favorite artist in the world. He especially enjoyed working with women. He asked for a technician, not an engineer, and that's what I was. So I interviewed, I got the job, packed my bags, and off I went. What record would that have been after? This was after 1999. So he was just coming off the 1999 tour. He didn't tour controversy, not in California anyway, but I had seen him on the Dirty Mind tour. I had seen him on the 1999 tour. I was such a huge fan. I had all his records. and He really was my favorite artist. And uh, he came home from tour, and he had big plans. So when he came home from that tour, he was 24 years old, uh, which didn't seem... Didn't seem all that young then, but boy, when I think of it now. Anyway, he's 24 years old, and uh, he's planning something utterly outrageous. He's planning his sixth major label album. Who does that at age 24? Very few people. And more audacious than that, he has just received the green light to do a semi-autobiographical movie of his life. (laughs) He's 24. Uh, and Warner Brothers just believed in him so much, they said, yeah, let's go. So he had already started the process of the Purple Rain movie, and he'd already started the process of the album, and he knew he needed a full-time tech to keep his home studio running and to help facilitate these these two endeavors. I feel like I need to share with you my Prince story. Oh, yes. So I first became aware of Prince. I was going to NYU. And my friend Lori Gardner had a Dirty Mind poster mm. up in her wall of her dorm room. And I'm like, who is that? And she goes, oh, it's Prince. You have to listen to that. And she put the record on. And from that day forward through the entire of the 1980s, I listened to Prince one way or another every single day of the 1980s. I, I was actually, I was doing a podcast interview uh, a couple of days ago with somebody for somebody else's podcast. And they asked me what my favorite song of all time was. And I said, oh, 1999. Aww. And by the way, Sign of the Times, in my estimation, is the greatest album ever recorded. Wow. And that's the reason that I wanted to have this conversation with you because the era that you worked with Prince was really interesting to me, not just in terms of the songs that he was writing, because I think the songs that he, were write, he was writing were incredible, But the sounds that he was putting on these records were so unique Mm. as a pop artist that I really wanted to find out the story behind some of the choices that were made because he influenced so many people and yet nobody ever could sound sound like Prince. (laughs) Yeah, that was a little bit deliberate. I remember one time I was trying to encourage him to to do what everyone else was doing and, and get an SSL, Solid State Logic console, so we could have automation and we could do automated mixes and we could have more control over our sound. And I'm trying to persuade him. And he said, we don't sound like everybody else, Susan. We've got our own thing. And he he took pride in that. And it's mm-hmm. uh, I used the word audacious already, but he was. And, and yet, you know, there are... There are folks in the arts who can only get so far on boldness. Boldness needs to be calculated. It it needs to be strategic. You can't just get out there and and shock or 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 be unusual for the sake of being unusual it needs to be strategic as the years go by and i'm exposed to more and more young people because i teach at berkeley and i'm surrounded by young musicians and as i've worked with other artists 
with, with each passing year, I've become more aware of just how unique Prince was. He, 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 was, he was extraordinary in so many ways. In my opinion, Purple Rain was the culmination of everything that he had done up to that point. In terms of, it was the perfect album that encapsulated everything that he had done as an organic artist as well as an electronic artist. And then from Purple Rain, the, the next two records, at least in my, in my ears, he started to become sparser. He started to strip back instruments. And I'm, so I'm curious, again, before we get to Sign of the Times... In the studio, when you guys are sitting together and you've come off of Purple Rain, which is massive, and it's a massive pop record, do you know or does he know that he's making a particular album or is he just recording music and then deciding what a record is? He's just recording music and then deciding what a record is. So for your listeners, the way most people would do it back in the olden days, uh, today's technology makes it possible to work differently. But how we used to do it is um, you'd, you'd be touring your latest release. And near the end of that tour, you have to start thinking about transitioning to coming off the road and going into writing mode. And then after writing mode, after after you have a, a batch of songs, you sit down with your label and your management, you find a producer, and then you go into rehearsal, you do pre-production, and then you make an album. And when you're done with that album, you go into rehearsal for the tour and you start the whole process again. But in those days, when everyone was working like that, Prince wasn't. He needed to be recording every day. So we recorded at, at rehearsal, and he recorded at home. He had a home studio, and we recorded while we were on tour, on the Purple Rain tour. We were always either booking a studio for after the show, or we were working with a mobile truck. So he's recording all the time. And because he's recording all the time, there was no definitive start to an album. There was a definitive end point, of course, when you finally sequence the record, which we sequenced albums many times, and then he, he'd live with them for a couple of days and then take them apart and then come up with a new sequence and new songs. But anyway, uh, you, you didn't know when a record started. What he was looking for was a concept, was a perspective. He loved albums more than singles. He really spent so little energy on singles. He simply, it was almost as if he didn't care. That was why for the Around the World in a Day album, he didn't even pick one. He, he let DJs play whatever they wanted to play. What he loved making was albums. And he loved, he loved the notion of the listeners having an experience that ha would have a beginning and a middle and an end. So we'd be, he'd be kind of fishing for a theme, for a notion for a color scheme that would accompany the next record, for a look, for a worldview that would be the right move in the arc of his career. For Sign of the Times, that was a bit of a protracted effort. So after he came home from the south of France, after doing the Parade album and the movie Under the Cherry Moon, he started an album called Dream Factory and The Revolution were featured on it. The revolution broke up, so he re-began the next process and, and started working on Crystal Ball. And we did quite a lot around this theme of Crystal Ball. He and Susanna, their relationship was getting more and more tense, and Sheila E.'s band was coming into the fold. 
Sheila's band from Oakland had a different sound than Wendy and Lisa brought to Prince. They, they brought the L.A. sound. Sheila's band, were they were tougher and funkier, so he had to have a record that would work well with that band behind him on tour. So gradually, the ideas that had been bubbling under the radar for Dream Factory, for Crystal Ball, found their way into music that was expressed on Sign of the Times. You mentioned earlier that uh, you thought Sign of the Times was the greatest album ever made. You're the second person this week, the second journalist who, who said that to me. That's, uh, so I think a lot of people share that opinion. I remember the, the very first time that I listened to the record, as each song went by, I was amazed. But it, it was um, when the, after, at the end of The Cross mm. is when I made, I made the pro- proclamation to myself, this is the greatest <laughs> album of all time. Because I'm, I'm a rock guy. And The Cross, you know, and I'm not, I'm not terribly religious, I, mm. but I, I, I took it, you know, for what, it, for what, it, for whatever it was, meaning wise. But it was so powerful in the way it built up, mm. and it was so to me, it was so bold in how spare it was with with the guitar and the sound of his voice. And then when the song picks up at the end, it's like this is important. Mm. That's what it felt like. It's like, oh. this is important. And that made the whole album important. Oh, that's a wonderful way of describing it. Um, I think y- your instincts are spot on there. When we recorded that song, it, I got the sense that he felt it was important. You know, I've, I've heard that Thelonious Monk said that the genius is the man who is most like himself. Prince was so perfectly and sublimely himself. When he went into the studio, when he recorded, he tried so hard to make a direct connection with those listeners. Uh, That's one of the reasons why he enjoyed doing his vocals all alone in the control room. Because when there was no middleman, when he could sing directly, privately to his listeners, he was uninhibited. And his vocal performance didn't have to be filtered through another set of ears before it got to his listeners. So I have said, and I believe this is correct, he's one of the most honest lyric writers you'll ever know. He he told you what he wanted you to know. Now, it wasn't the full truth because so many songs were written and recorded and they ended up in the vault. There was a lot that he kept to himself, a lot that he kept private. But what he did share, you can best believe he meant what he said. This was These, these records were not calculated to necessarily dominate the Billboard Hot 100, not the singles charts. He was deeply interested in albums and he was deeply interested interested in expressing himself to a core fan base who wanted to hear from him. So that did make him a very honest performer. The day that we did The Cross, I was so surprised that he kept that drum track. I mean, the drum track just speeds up appallingly. appallingly. You can you can have dynamics without speeding up. It just goes so fast. And I thought, okay, well, you know, rewind the tape. We're going to do that again. And he was happy with it. And he added the other instruments, and he was he was totally happy with it. And I'm thinking, this makes I've never I've, I've never seen this before from Prince. I've I've never seen 
such an appalling lack of time on any Prince songs. This isn't Prince. And yet it was Prince. It was, as you said, as you picked up on, important. And he was trying to let you know, here's what I believe. Here's what I feel. Here's what I think. And yeah, I'm going to speed up because you know what? I don't care about the rules right now. I've just got something I want to say. And he said it. And after we did that song, He was in such a good mood. He was so happy. Now, that happened fairly often, you know, when we did work. He'd usually relieve something and he'd be in a good mood. But that was one that stood out to me because the atmosphere around Sign of the Times was not as youthful and energized and excited as it was around Purple Rain. It wasn't as uh, just giddy as it was around around the world in a day, because around the world in a day was done before Purple Rain was released. For the most part, we didn't know how Purple Rain was going to do. It just felt right. And uh, the Parade album, he was much more accomplished. But on Sign of the Times, now he's approaching the age of 30. Now he needs to make a man's record, not a boy's record. He can't be talking about lust. He needs to talk about love. So he's maturing. His worldview is maturing and He's well aware that rap and hip-hop are going to be dominating. They'll be dominating the charts now, and that he doesn't do rap and hip-hop. So it's a man's, I wouldn't say swan song, but it's a man establishing his legacy or in hopes of establishing his legacy. Did he articulate to you before he went into the studio? He started with the drums on that track, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. Did he articulate to you before he started recording the song what it was he wanted to accomplish so that you knew what kind of sounds you want? he wanted this to be? No. He, even the sound of the guitar was particular. Oh, he would, uh, the way it would work is he would either call me if I were home asleep or he'd have someone call me and usually wake me up because I usually only got a few hours of sleep. So it would be, you know, just... You weren't ready for it, but the phone would ring, and it would either be Prince or it would be someone who worked for him. And if it was Prince, he'd tell me what he wanted set up. And I'd have a notepad and a pencil, and I'd write everything down. Now, if it was someone from the office who called, I'd get to the studio, and sometimes if it was the home studio, I would find a note sitting on the console. I even have one of them um, that was, that's in my um, in my bag of memories. Um, a note on the console that would say, we want acoustic drums or electric drums, or we want this bass tone, we want this guitar tone, we want acoustic piano or these keyboards. And uh, on the note that I have that's sitting in my closet, he says, uh, we need a, a long reverb for the snare. For the piano, he says, we want a big, big sound for the piano as opposed to a small percussive sound. A, a big sound for the piano and blah, 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 all these things. And then down at the bottom, he says, the faster you work, the more I can get done. And then the last sentence is, save, <laughs> save my blood pressure, please. <laughs> his blood pressure. <laughs> so his, his, his favorite way to work was to not communicate. If and that's why he, he he would keep the same engineers around for such a long time because um, if if you knew his methodology and he seldom experimented with methodology, uh, if if you could just get the sounds that you knew he liked that would work for him, he can come in and he can go from instrument to instrument to instrument 
without having to have a conversation. So he was never likely to share his thoughts on what we were hoping to achieve sonically or uh, emotionally or musically. Um, he would say, this is the gear I need, and he would take it from there. I heard the story about the recording of The Ballad of Dorothy Parker. Mm-hmm. And what's funny about it, and I, I would like you to to relay the story, because to me as a listener from the very first day that I heard the record, it's like, wow, this sounds like it was recorded underwater. So if you could explain <laughs> why it sounds the way it does. Oh, gee. Yeah, that was a, a day in the life of a technician. So we're at home in Chanhassen, Minnesota, in Prince's new house on Galpin Road in Chanhassen, which is just down the street from where Paisley Park Studios ultimately would be built. And um, he had ordered, a year or so before, he had ordered a custom-built recording console from a fellow named Frank Demidio out in Los Angeles. Demidio made the best analog consoles in the world, arguably, but uh, Prince loved the one that Domitio had built for Sunset Sound, so he wanted the same thing. So he commissioned Frank to build it, and it was taking too long with Prince. Everything had to go so fast. So at some point, Prince just said, get that console and that guy on a plane, get them to Minnesota, and get this guy to finish this console here in my home studio where I can watch him every day. I want this done. He was so impatient. Uh, we had just come home, you know, from from the south of France, and he 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 was so impatient. He he wanted it done. So Frank and the console came out, and we spent that time doing the the final uh, the final um, implementation and soldering and installation and all that. And we tested it, and it looked great. It was flat from DC direct current all the way up to seventy k. I mean, this thing would swing some current. It was gorgeous. I'd never seen anything like it. Frank gets on a plane, he goes home, but it was quite hasty. So the next morning, I don't remember who called me, but anyway, I get the call, come to the studio, Prince has got a song, hurry, 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 set up this, that, and the other thing. And he comes in and he can't wait to record. And as soon as we start with the drum machine, I'm recognizing, oh, something's wrong here. I, I don't know what it is, but this console shouldn't sound like this. There's no high end. And I'm thinking, okay, well, he's going to stop because just like with the cross, he hears this, of course. So he's going to stop, right? And he's going to give me a minute to, to look and see what's wrong. He didn't stop. <laughs> I remember when my niece was born, the first time they're feeding her solid food, her mother and her aunt didn't know how much food a baby eats, so they just kept feeding her and feeding her and feeding her, and she ate the whole jar, and they thought, well, what if she wants more? So they opened another jar, and she wouldn't stop eating. <laughs> and it reminded me of that because he just wouldn't stop recording. And <laughs> we went through all the instruments. He did the vocal, and he's doing the vocal, and I'm thinking, oh. with each passing instrument, I'm thinking, this is getting worse and worse and worse. I'm sure it's going to tape like that. We're listening to the output of the tape. This is bad. It sounds like it's underwater. And he would not stop. And I thought to myself, if I stop him, he's waited so long to do this. He's so happy right now. <laughs> he's just in his happy place. And and this is turning out great. This song is amazing. I can't stop him. I can't stop him. So I didn't say anything. And he kept going. And then we finally printed a mix. And he gave me some instructions. And he said, I like this console. It's kind of dull. 
<laughs> and he left the room. And I thought, oh, oh, my God. I am so relieved. And that was so funny. And sure enough, so I grab the multimeter and I look at the power supplies. And there, there are two power supplies, one for the positive and one for the negative in, a, in an analog console like that. And one of the power supplies had gone down. So we were only swinging half the current you would normally swing. And that is going to affect your high frequencies. But it was okay, one of those happy accidents, because the song is, it came to him in a dream. And, and in this dream, lyrically, he's, uh, he meets someone. He meets someone who's intriguing. And yet, uh, it, it, it might lead to a sexual interaction, but he's saying, okay, I'll take a bath, but I'm going to leave my pants on because I'm kind of going with someone. Now, in his life right now, in his relationship, he and Susanna were living together, and he they were engaged, and he had made this commitment to her to be with her exclusively, you know, as you do when you get married. And there was tension there. He was not sure he could, he could do it, and and that found its way into his dream. Like I, I, I'm gonna, I'm gonna stay true to my word. I said I'd be faithful. I'm going to be faithful. But this is tough. But when you think about the lyrics of that song, he goes to a restaurant. This is a young black man from North Minneapolis who goes to a restaurant and says, "Yeah, let me get a fruit cocktail. I'm not too hungry." <laughs> A fruit cocktail. Now, this is in a year where the Bloods and the Crips are shooting it out in the major cities of the United States, where young black men his age are joining gangs and terrorizing people, and there's carjackings, there's all kinds of stuff going on. And this guy is saying, oh, I'll go to a restaurant. Oh, I think I'll like a, a fruit cocktail. <laughs> he, he was so... Unique and so okay with himself, so okay with who he was. You, you know, you 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 brought up the gangs, and that that actually, I guess, ties into Sign of the Times because as as um, flippant as he might be, he was obviously completely tied into what was happening around the world, and you know, Sign of the Times was a call to all of us. I mean. Again, as I, as I mentioned, it's like, you know, 1999 was very specific and it, you know, let's party before this all ends. And in Sign of the Times, he's talking about this world is not, this world's on fire. Mm, right. Um, I love the line, in France, a skinny man died of a big disease with a little name. That was Rock Hudson. And for anyone who was young and sexually active at that time, AIDS may have been someone else's problem a few years back, but it was abundantly clear that it was everyone's problem now, and that was pretty scary. So there was AIDS, and Susanna Melvoin has told the story of uh, there was an earthquake in Los Angeles where she and Prince were staying at a hotel, and he was really literally uh, and figuratively rattled by that earthquake. Being from Minnesota, he wasn't used to that. That earthquake was pretty scary. And then, of course, there was the gang violence right outside our doors, and there was the Challenger that had just exploded, and um, and then there was the coming tsunami of a sea change in music, as popular music always does. It changes every few years. And not only is there a sea change in music, but his life is changing. The revolution is, is on their way out. His relationship may or may not last 
that's kind of scary when you realize, you know, if I were going to marry anyone, it would be you, and I don't think I can do it. Um, a lot of changes going on in his life at that point, which would lead him to reflect on, on what it means for himself and, and for others. When you are um, not involved in doing pre-production, because I guess these songs are just happening in front of you as, as the recording is happening, uh, at what point do you, are you cognizant of what the song is? Well, you have a sense of what it is, surely, you know, before the lyrics go on. There seemed to be, there were three kind of varieties, and the one he did the most easily, the ones that would just come out like a sneeze, were the more up-tempo dance tracks. Typically, in the days of the revolution, we would record those at rehearsal. Uh, they were so much fun, and we had a recording set up at rehearsal, so with the whole band, the individual band members would come up with their parts, and Prince would, would be the band director, and we'd do this fun stuff, these fun, fun dance jams. And he could do that by himself so easily. He was a genius with programming a drum machine. And so, 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 so you, got, you got the sense from the get-go, the mood of this song. And then he would usually, he wouldn't write those in advance. He'd have chord changes. He'd have a riff. He'd have a, a groove. But halfway through, he'd stop, make a cassette of it, take it out to the car, take his notebook. He liked recording lyrics, in, or rather writing lyrics in the car. And he'd sit in the car and he'd write lyrics, come back in, do the vocal, we'd wrap it up. <clears throat> but for the bigger, more important songs, often he would have written them before we came to the studio, especially piano ballads. They would have a melody and they'd have a chord progression and they'd have a full set of lyrics. So as we began approaching them, whether it was on acoustic drums or drum machine, he knew in advance the lyrics would be sitting right there and I could see it too. We knew what this song was going to be about and how it's going to come together. Now I can now be dialing in reverbs and compressors and limiters and delays and sound effects as the song is coming together, knowing what he likes. I, I know the safe zone of pulling in sounds that he will find appealing. And I can add a few novel things, but you couldn't do anything that would be experimental because you couldn't slow him down. Often, though, of course, I wouldn't know what the topic was until I heard the vocal. And, and after he would do the vocal, I would come back into the room and that's when you begin the embellishment on a track and you let it turn a corner, if it's going to turn a corner. Uh, if it's going to end up in the vault, you finish it up quickly, and you put it away. But if it's an important song, we'd spend a lot of time going through different patches and different timbres and different tones, not experimenting the way we do with other artists. He knew what he wanted, but refining, I suppose, would be the better word, to get that song to be all that it could be. He didn't want to let a good one get away, so you'd slow down a little bit. You'd take a little extra care with it. So a song like Hot Thing, which is just, you know, a full-on jam, is that... I mean, did it start with a drum machine, or was, was that one of the, the tracks that was written with the band in rehearsal? Now, that one in particular, I do not remember. I remember it, and I remember Forever in My Life. Drum machine, fairly similar setups, done at home. Hot thing, I honestly don't remember if we did that at Sunset Sound or if we did that at home. It was pretty much all prints, though. I do know that. And then brought in the horns later for the... And uh, then the horns came in later. Eric Leeds was a, a very big part of the Sign of the Times album. 
a very big part. Um, so with the revolution going out, with Sheila's band coming in, Eric was s- such a... a such a good musical partner for Prince. Um, Prince loved his ideas, and Prince would often call Eric to the studio, give him suggestions for a horn part, or just let him take it. And then Prince would leave, and Eric and I would work together as Eric layered horn parts. Sometimes we knew we wanted, or he knew he wanted trumpet, so he'd bring in Matt Bliston as well. So I, I am curious. I know that there was, that he handed in to Warner Brothers crystal ball as as a three album set and they said you got to cut this down so i'm wondering how much of this was on crystal ball i'm also wondering how many of these songs or which of these songs may have existed earlier on or were these all written around the same time so when prince was conceiving of crystal ball and the same as when he was conceiving any record he ever did you always Think of four to six songs that are going to be the kernel, the seed, the main songs, the main message on the album, just as if you're doing a television program. You've got your main dramatic scenes, but the other scenes, of course, are just segue scenes that have to tie the narrative together. That's how he thought of albums. So once he knew what the main songs were, the other songs would be chosen to complement that kernel, that seed. Um, A main song surely was the song Crystal Ball, but when that came off the table, other songs that complemented that, like Witness for the Prosecution and Big Tall Wall and Train, which I love so much, a lot of things uh, in a large room with no light, uh, those had to come off the table. Um, It wasn't until he recorded the song Sign of the Times I believe that he then knew what his next record would be. I think he he was searching a little bit prior to the recording of the song Sign of the Times, but the, that song seemed uh it seemed obvious that you could build an album and a concept a concept album to boot around this song. Other songs that were important on Sign of the Times were The Cross and Ballad of Dorothy Parker uh and Adore and for reasons that were probably a little bit more calculated than what he normally was, you got the look. Um, I think at some point he began to worry a little bit that he might not have a single, and he was going to need one. At least the Parade album had had Kiss, and, and that was a, a successful single for him. Around the World in a Day didn't, didn't have a, a single. So he, he, we spent a lot of time on You Got the Look, I think, in the hopes of, of getting that one over the finish line. And then he pulled an oldie out of the closet, and that was Strange Relationship. We had been working on Strange Relationship for years at rehearsal and, and in, in various places, just trying to figure out what's the best treatment for this song, which was unusual for Prince. He didn't normally do that. But he finally came up with what he thought was the canonical version of Strange Relationship uh, in an effort, I think, to make, in part, to make, to make the, the album um, perhaps have a single and, and maybe appeal to more listeners. And perhaps maybe Housequake was intended to, to be a single as well. It didn't work for me personally, nor did, well, I loved If I Was Your Girlfriend. It's one of my favorite songs. I love the soulfulness of it. But he asked me in the control room if I thought it, it should be released as a single, and I foolishly said yes. I, I, I thought it would work on R&B radio. I thought it was soulful enough. But 
I was naive. I didn't realize that that lyrical message wasn't going to fly as a single. It's interesting that you, uh, what you said or what he, that how calculated you got the look was because I always, again, I love all the songs on this record, but that one really was a bit of an, seemed like an outlier because that was the one song that actually did sound calculated. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we had started with it. Uh, it was originally one of those slower jams. It was slower and funkier and, and uh, I was really liking it very much, but we spent a lot of time on it. And then typically, if you spend a lot of time on a song with Prince and he's unhappy with it, he'll just shut the door on it. And it the tape goes into the vault and, and you forget about it. But in this case, he did something unusual. He wasn't willing to shut the door on this one. So after working on it for like two days, we um, stripped the whole top line, kept just the drum machine, sped up the tape, and reapproached it as as a, 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 a more dance pop tune. Mm-hmm. Oh, and I forgot to mention that you you had mentioned earlier about pulling old material in order mm-hmm. to complete "Sign of the Times," and that was um, "Slow Love," which had been in the vault for a long time. And uh, I could never take the place of your man. Those were older songs oh. that we pulled up okay. just to be the segue pieces that he need needed to tie the main songs together. Um, I think at this point near the end of the album, he was tired because this is now the third album he's put together and he didn't normally do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's why he'd rather pull up some old stuff from the vault than to have to write new material. One of the things that I always loved about Prince was that he had a lot of different voices that he sang in. Uh, there, I mean, he obviously had, could he could sing like a motherfucker. He could really he could really belt it out. He you know had a really soulful voice. Often he would sing in monotone, which I always found fascinating because I can't sing at all. And it's like he's giving me hope. <laughs> he's giving me hope that there's something there. And then there was Camille, this this alter ego. Do you do you have any recollection as to when Camille kind of showed up? <laughs> Yeah, I have a little bit of a recollection. So around this time, Susanna and I, um, we would have to, we'd be hanging out when he was doing vocals because he would do his vocals all by himself in the control room. So I would be waiting on the other side of the door. Mm-hmm. If we were at home or if we were, we were at Sunset Sound, that gave Susanna and me a chance to talk or have fun. Um, and I remember at one point we were drawing. She had been drawing quite a bit. She had drawn a mural in the den of his home, and that's where the line came from in Crystal Ball that says, uh, while soldiers draw their swords of sorrow, my baby draws pictures of sex all over the walls in graphic detail. Sex. <laughs> and it wasn't sex. It was these two nymphs, just nymphs, you know, like fairies. They just look kind of flat-chested, and they're usually mm-hmm. sort of nude, or they're wearing some gossamer see-through gown, and they got the wings. That's what it was. Not sex. <laughs> sex. <laughs> but anyway, Susanna and I were drawing pictures, and we drew these figures, and I remember putting X's for the eyes, because I always thought that was funny how they did that in cartoons sometimes. Mm-hmm. If, you were, if you were rattled, you'd have X's for the eyes. And uh, we showed it to Prince, and he really thought it was funny. He really liked that X's for the eyes thing. And I, I think he began, why I think this is, he may, may have said something, but he began <clears throat> germinating the idea of having a band that was led by a figure that 
It was kind of ghostly. You weren't sure, is this male or female? Is this person alive or dead? Is this a a ghost? Is this a a nymph? What is this person? Where the word Camille came from, I don't know. But uh, right around that time, Jesse Johnson came to the home studio with his album, Shockadelica, to play it for Prince. And Prince absolutely loved the the title, Shockadelica. He loved that word. Mm -hmm. And it turned out Jesse had no song called Shockadelica on his album, so uh, Prince said to him, you know, where's your song, Shockadelica? And Jesse said, well, no, it's just the name of the album. I don't have one. So Prince sent Jesse home. We took off the tape we were working on. We put up fresh tape. He starts a dance track, and in no time at all, he's written this new lyric. The lights go out. The smell of doom is creeping into your living room. Your, your bed's on fire. Your fate is sealed. And the reason is Camille, Shockadelica. So he is now, when we're working on Sign of the Times, remember that with his other recent previous albums, there's been a movie that's gone along with it. So Parade is built around Under the Cherry Moon, the ideas that were that were shown there in that movie, and Purple Rain, of course, goes with that its movie. And he's kind of batting around the idea of maybe there'll be another movie for this next album, and what should it be about? And who, who will be the antagonist? Who will this other band be? Because the time is no longer together. So I think he was playing with the idea of having this band called Camille. It never came to fruition, nor did the Coco Boys. Uh, on this upcoming Sign of the Times release, you'll, you'll hear a song about the Coco Boys. That was another maybe alter ego different band who, who could tour with him and and who could be featured in a movie. So how how did you end up leaving? Hmm. Well, um, we had had over four years together, and I sometimes call it a tour of duty because it was not stressful in the way that soldiers experience, you know, but... It was a tour of duty in that it was stressful, um, and there was no other life other than this. You're working for for his staff, especially someone like me who spent more hours with him than most. The others would receive their instructions from him in, in brief meetings, and then they'd go on and carry out these instructions. But as his engineer, I was with him every day for countless hours. So I had no personal life. I had no family life. I had no social life. I had, I, it, was, it was difficult to get dressed and fed and <laughs> maintain a home. I mean, it, because I had so, so few hours to myself. So it felt kind of like a tour of duty where I'm in service to something greater than myself. And I was more than happy to do that. I w- was very grateful. But it was difficult. So... When Paisley Park Studios finally opened its doors in July, I believe it was, of 1987, we are uh, working on two different projects at the same time. He's at home working on Madhouse 16 with um, new staff engineers there at Paisley Park, and I'm out in Los Angeles doing post-production on the Sign of the Times concert film. Um, And as I'm there working... I met a guy, uh, a technician who, who was a, a, a well-known Hollywood technician who was an expert at at film sound. Was working with me at at uh, Oceanway Studios out there in Los Angeles, and we were kind of attracted to each other. And I went out on a date 
and I was out. And this was back in the years where, you know, you didn't have a cell phone with you. You had a beeper, and I turned mine off because I was on a damn date. And apparently Prince tried to reach me, and, and he couldn't. And um, he flew out from Minneapolis. He flew out to Los Angeles. And the very next morning, we met on the soundstage, the Hollywood, I think it was Hollywood Sound. We met on a soundstage in L.A. I got there first with some tapes. He walked in a little bit later. He made a beeline for me. He walked straight toward me. He pointed to an empty vocal booth, you, me, vocal booth now. And I went in that booth, and he said, I tried to reach you last night. Where were you? And I said, I was out. And then I don't remember our exact words, but the upshot of it was he and I realized that that social contract that we had agreed to when we agreed to be employer and employee was temporary. Anybody can quit a job. Anybody can fire an employee. You agree to do it by mutual consent. And he needed someone who would be like what he'd always had, available 24-7, 365 days a year, no matter the day, no matter the circumstances, to serve that train that he, he, he was the conductor of. The engine of his creativity was, ran so hot, you had to serve that to the exclusion of everything else. And I was acknowledging, like, well, I did that, but you can only do that for so long. This isn't sustainable. And we both realized... If this is going to be how it's going to go, then we're incompatible. And so it, um, it ended kind of the way it began, with, it, with us agreeing. We began by agreeing we are this to each other, and we ended by agreeing we can no longer be this for each other. It was sad, but it was kind of inevitable. And um, I'm, I main, maintained good relations with him afterward when clients would hire me to work at Paisley Park Studios and I would see him there. And, um, and it was always warm and, and, and loving and it felt good. He, he kept good relations with folks who used to, used to be with him. He didn't burn bridges as a general rule. So you went on to do a lot of production work over the years. You continued to engineer, but you also did some production work. And... Uh, Obviously, uh, had some nice success with Bare Naked Ladies and that stunt, yes. the stunt record. How how is that for you? <laughs> oh, that was just a highlight of my life. I love those guys. They asked me, they invited me, as you do with producers. You know, you select someone, you say, "We choose you." And I was very excited to work with them. But I only had it was three weeks, I think it was, maybe even two weeks. Uh, it was it was it was short, 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 short. I was in between projects, and I had contracts signed, and I was coming off of one record, and I was going on to another one, and and so in January of 1998, we went to Austin, Texas. Arlen was the name of the studio, and uh, we worked really quickly. I think it was two weeks in the studio, and one week prior to that for pre-production in Toronto, where we could just zip through the songs fairly quickly. What mattered then was to was to assess what are we trying to do, what do we need this record to do out there in the marketplace how do you want to change from what you've done before and uh, in uh, in the case of this record they said what we'd like to do is appeal to american listeners we've sold a lot in canada but we want to we want to we want to have a hit single in the states so i set about working with them and bringing a little bit of that ear to what they were doing 
And, um, and they're such great players. They're so smart. They're so funny. They're an absolute joy to work with. I regretted that I couldn't finish the record with them, but I was able to... Um, they were in good hands with, with David Leonard. David Leonard and I had the same manager. David finished up vocals, finished up guitars, added a rougher edge to it, and uh, and he mixed it. So uh, together, we're all pretty proud of the work we did. Those guys were on fire at that time. And they're so brilliant, and they were really at the top of their game then. Can you explain to people the difference between an engineer's responsibility and a producer's responsibility? Yeah, that's a good question. So think of it like the director and the cinematographer on a film. The engineer is responsible for for the sound of the album, but the producer is responsible for the performance gestures and for the arrangements. So a, a director will work with a script, just like a producer will work with a script. These songs are written. And... The producer and the artist will decide the function of a record out there in the marketplace of ideas. Who will be its audience? Are we going for singles or are we going for album glory? Uh, are we going for a new market? Or are we trying to keep the market that we have? Are we trying to pick up more men in the audience? You know, this audience is pretty female heavy. Or are we trying to pick up a younger crowd? Or what is its function in the marketplace? And then based on those conversations and what your goals are, then you choose the form that will serve that function. Uh, so producers are are in charge of um, of people on a record. We listen to performance gestures, every performance, and we assess it in terms of how good it is versus how good it can be or should be. You're always assessing when you hear a performance, is this good enough? And if it's not, what do we need to make it better? And is this the person who can make it better? Maybe this drummer just doesn't feel this groove. Maybe this bass player is just not capable of playing that gent, 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 gent kind of bass that I need. Do I need to hire another bass player or do I need to change my ideas about what kind of bass part we need? So you're, you're concerned with the kind of the meta picture. The engineer then is responsible for the, for the signal flow and is responsible for how the sounds will serve that vision. Will the sounds be clean or, dis or distorted? Will they be, um, are you going to emphasize the low frequencies, the mids, the highs? Is it going to be wide frequency or is it going to be narrow? Similar to how a cinematographer would decide how to frame a shot. So let's say you've got a, you're making a movie and you've got a script and it calls for a couple to be fighting. And this is a bad fight, let's say. Think about how you frame it. If you're close up on her, you're on him. You're on her, you're on him. And you're, you're going back and forth. The viewer is going to get one sense of how this fight is going, like a ping pong match, back and forth, back and forth. But if you dial that camera back a little bit, open the lens a bit, and you frame both of them in the same shot, now you're seeing their bodies in relation to each other. Who leans in? Who pulls back? Is she afraid of him? Is he being aggressive toward her? Is he afraid of her? You're seeing their relationship together. But then if you pull that camera back even further and you open up that lens, oh, well, now, now we see their, their apartment. Now we see the view outside their window. Now we see the pictures on their mantelpiece. Now we get more of the backstory. The framing of the shot is so important in terms of how we direct our attention 
how we as listeners direct our attention. Should we pay, be paying attention to the vocals? Should it be the rhythm section? Should it be the chord progression or the harmony? Uh, that That's the difference. It can be done, and I've done it. I did it with Bare Naked Ladies and with with pretty much all the artists I produced. I also engineered it as well. But at that point, my engineering was so up to speed that I could do it fairly automatically. You had mentioned something earlier that I'd like to come back to about Prince. You had mentioned, because um, I, th- I thought this was very insightful, you had mentioned how his arrangements were getting more stripped down yes. after Purple Rain. And I, I, I think the moment when that happened, I don't know if I'm right or not, but one moment when it happened was when he changed up When Doves Cry. So... I, I was recently sent. Um, I was recently sent the original version of When Doves Cry when he originally did it, and when he originally did When Doves Cry, it was really thick and heavy on the bottom. The electric guitars were distorted and heavy. The bass was heavy. The rhythm rhythm was heavy. It was a very rhythm heavy track. But these lyrics and the melody up at the top is singing about when doves cry, and the melody is is, is itself fairly rhythmic. You mentioned monotone, but it's not a great verse melody. Dig, if you will, the picture. Not a great melody. The melody is merely a setup for the release. The release is the chorus. This is what it sounds like when doves cry, but he doesn't sing a chorus. He plays a chorus. Ding, 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 ding. In the original version of that song, he didn't have that lead line. He didn't have that hook. He was smart enough to recognize at some point, this song is just bottom heavy. And and he recognized that, first off, strip off that heavy guitar. We don't need it. We're talking about doves and crying here. You don't need to go rawr. So pull out that heavy guitar. And then he's listening to his track, and then he realizes, nor do I need the bass. The bass is simply doing a rhythm part. let Drums do the rhythm, and let this keyboard be our chorus melody. Let the lyrics tell the story. So you can take fewer parts and have each part carry more weight. So rather than casting a lot of people in a movie or in a play, sometimes you can rewrite that play with just three or four actors. Although if you do, each actor is going to have to carry more of the weight in the story. They've got a bigger job to do. That, that, that's the perspective of a producer. I, I, if I could just very quickly tell you, one of the um, – actually, the, the motivation for the Creationist podcast, the motivation mm-hmm. for me as a man – as a, well, at first a child – who became fascinated with creativity came from a documentary about Pablo Picasso that I saw as a little, as an eight-year-old, 10-year-old, where the, it was a French or Belgium documentary where a camera was behind the easel. So you saw him create from the point of view of the easel. And what I saw for the first time was that you can begin to create and then you can change your creation and it can become something else altogether. And that's what you've just described with Wind Up's Cry. Mm. You know? You're constantly walking that tightrope between form and function. You can make the form anything you want it to be, just like if you're making furniture or you're designing buildings. You can make it anything you want it to be within your imagination. But 
the weirder you make the form, the more limited will be its function. A, a beanbag chair is a chair, but because it's such an unusual form, it will only work in very limited contexts. So it's the same thing with music. You're, you're constantly deciding how much innovation or novelty is the right amount and how much ambiguity in your work of art is is acceptable. One of the one of the big things that a producer does is assess the lyrics to understand, yeah, I know you know what you meant when you wrote these words, but sometimes your listener just has no idea what the hell you're talking about. And what we need to do as listeners is we need to relate what we're hearing to us. Prince was smart enough and he knew this. He said um about his audience, he said it's not me they're interested in. They're interested in themselves. He was absolutely correct. He was merely serving as a template for people's fantasies. And he was serving to be the fantasy of the boyfriend you'd like to be with or the, the creator you'd like to be or the dancer you'd like to be or the singer or the player, the, 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 the writer you'd like to be. That's what our, our that's what all art does for us. It, it it reflects or it tries to anyway some truth about our ourselves, our own psyches. Well, I, I hope. Yeah. Sorry, go go ahead. No, no, I was, was going to say. <laughs> sorry. You go ahead. I was just going to say that um, I'm very excited about this upcoming box set of Sign of the Times. There are gems on there uh, for Prince fans. Um, Witness for the prosecution. Personally, for me, I love so much, and and in a large room with no light, one of my favorites, and Train, which I love so much. This is great stuff on there. And another thing that's cool, uh, speaking of creativity, is hearing the two different versions of Witness for the Prosecution. Hearing the two different versions of Forever in My Life. The earlier version that he did. Sounds like a man on his wedding day. It sounds like a man so happy, so optimistic. He might as well be holding a bouquet of flowers. He, he just sounds, the future is so bright. But on the version that I did with him a little bit later, when there was some doubt in his mind about whether or not he could sustain this relationship, it's more somber in tone. There comes a time in every man's life when he gets tired of fooling around, juggling hearts in a three-ring circus. He doesn't sound like, wow, this is going to be great. He sounds as though he's thinking, this is going to be hard. I'll do it, but it's going to be hard. And and hearing the difference in that those two outlooks is of interest to folks who are interested in creativity. If, if, if For folks who are interested in uh, what you release and what you leave in the vault, what you want people to know about you and what you're not ready to say just yet, uh, th- this will be interesting for Prince fans for sure, and I hope it picks up a lot of new fans. It's funny that you say that. I had a, uh, I had a short conversation with Tom Petty uh, Back in 2014, I, you know, I said, look, I've been a fan from the very, very beginning, and I just think it's amazing that you've released as many records as you have, and you don't have one shitty song on any of your records. Uh-huh. And he kind of uh-huh. just looked at me and he went, we don't let anybody hear the shitty songs. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, if Prince had a thing, he would hold up three fingers in a, like a W sign, mm-hmm. and when we'd be working on something, and we'd record it, we get halfway through and he realized, no, this isn't good. He'd give me the three finger sign, the W. It stood for weak. 
This is weak. And so when he'd, when he'd hold up those three fingers, it meant take a Sharpie, go to the tape box, draw a big W on it, circle that big W. And he would say, the first time he taught me, taught me this, he said, this is weak. Write that on the box and remind me to never put up this tape again. <laughs> so, yeah, there was stuff that ended up in the vault that, you know, that just were ideas that weren't fully realized or were bad ideas. Uh, he was certainly capable of them, but pound for pound, I don't know of anybody who was more consistently productive and at such a high level as, as what he wants. Well, listen, thank you so much. This has been such a delight. Thank you, Steve. Following the enormous success of the Bare Naked Ladies album, Stunt, Susan decided to leave the music business and earned a PhD in music cognition and psychoacoustics at McGill University in Montreal. And now she's a professor at the Berklee College of Music in Boston. The expanded box set of Sign of the Times is available now and well worth the journey for anyone interested in great music whether or not you've ever been a Prince fan. In addition to the studio gems Susan talks about in this episode, there's a live recording of the Sign of the Times tour that captures the incredible power of Prince and his band live in concert. If you'd like to comment on this episode, have suggestions for future episodes, or just want to say hi, please email the creationistpodcast at gmail.com. Please don't forget to subscribe and rate us on your favorite podcast platform. Creationist is mastered in post-production by Paul Farron. I'm Steve Waxman, and I created this podcast. Mm-hmm.